Let's pray together. Our Lord, we really do pray and ask that you would open up our eyes so that we could see all the wonderful things in your word. And that when we do see them, that you would help us to believe those things. And that when we believe those things, that it would transform our lives. We confess before you that we can't do any of those things on our own. And so we really do ask for your help this morning. And we're so grateful that you're pleased to help. You love helping us. And so we ask with great confidence in the generosity that you have shown us time and time again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So on my road, we are in week three of our study in Galatians. And do you know what's interesting about the, the letter of Galatians? Is that Galatians is filled with these larger-than-life verses. This letter has example after example of verses that are so rich and so deep and so powerful, like verses that you would find on a mug. Not like a, 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 a ridiculous mug, but like a really nice mug, right? Or, or verses that you would get tattooed onto your body somewhere. Like really rich and really powerful types of verses. Like for example, in chapter 2, Paul says this, right? 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Consider that for a moment. What an amazing verse. What a rich truth. I mean, some of us have known this verse since we were little kids. We've memorized this verse. This is sort of a, a part of our lives. Or, or take, for example, in chapter 3. Paul says, in chapter 3, verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You hear that? He's using some really strong language there. He's calling out the Galatians. He's calling them foolish. It's like, it's like fighting words, right? I mean, Paul calls people, uh, calls them foolish, and you kind of hear the crowd in the background saying, ooh, like, that's a fight. That's a fight about to happen. I can't believe he said that. I mean, it's a powerful verse. It's an engaging verse. Or, or take, for example, in chapter 4. Paul says this in verse 6 and 7. He says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I mean, man, what a comforting verse, right? What a wonderful reminder of our identity. We are no longer slaves, but we're sons and daughters. What an encouragement. I mean, what a needed reminder. How helpful is that verse? But then, this week, as I was prepping to preach this sermon, my passage felt very different than all of these passages. You see, when I read my passage over and over again, it sort of felt like to me that I was reading over a travel brochure. That's what I felt like. Like we were reading Paul's plan for this like amazing road trip that he was about to take. That's what it sounded like to me. Because in, in verse 17, he says things like this. He says, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Or in verse 18, he says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Or... In verse 21, he says, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I read these verses and I was like, what is this, right? Like, how am I supposed to preach from this, these verses? And can I tell you, no joke, immediately I felt this intense form of anger building up towards Ajay and Sibi. I was like, 
these punks gave me this passage to preach. They get to preach all the good stuff, and they gave me this. But here's the thing, right? The more time that I spent in this passage, I was reminded that it really is true. You see, all scripture really is God-breathed. All scripture really is profitable and useful to us. That sometimes, even though we can't immediately see its importance or its relevance, the truth is, there really is truth here. Truth that God wants us to see and to believe. And this morning, I would say that one important truth that God wants us to see can actually be found in three little words that are tucked away in verse 11. Three words that help to summarize what this whole section is about. And those three words are this. Not man's gospel. Not man's gospel. You see, the point of this whole section is fairly simple. This passage will make a clear contrast between man's gospel and God's gospel. That's what this passage is going to do. It's going to give us a a clear contrast between man's gospel and God's gospel. Paul wants us to see that man's gospel and God's gospel are not the same. Man's gospel and God's gospel, in fact, are worlds apart from each other. So let's jump in and I can show you what I mean. There's only two points this morning, and here's our first point. Point one says, Paul's gospel is not man's gospel, but God's gospel. I wanted to see how many times I can fit in the word gospel into one sentence, right? But that's the, first, that's the first point. Paul's gospel is not man's gospel, but God's gospel. Look at verse 11 and 12. This is what it says. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. There it is, right? Those three important words, not man's gospel. Now, if you hear these verses and it sounds like, hey, I think I've heard Paul say this before, it's because he has. In fact, this is almost exactly how the letter itself begins. In verse 1, you don't have to turn to it. It'll, It'll say this. I can read it to you. It says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That's verse 1. And then you'll see the same idea repeated in verse 11. And then you'll see it in verse 12. And then you'll see it at the end of chapter 1. And then you'll see it in chapter 2. And that's when you realize that this not man's gospel thing, it must be a big deal for Paul, right? So much so that he keeps bringing it up over and over again. So you you have to sort of ask the question, why? Why is this such a big deal to Paul? Well, let me give you some quick background. If you remember, Paul goes to Galatia and he plants several churches. And when he plants these churches, these people really come to believe the gospel. They really love Jesus. Things are going great. But then soon after Paul leaves, a bunch of troublemakers from Jerusalem shows up in Galatia, right? These are false teachers. These were men who came with a clear agenda, and their agenda was this. They wanted to cause confusion. And you see, that's exactly what they did. They come in, and first, they accuse Paul of being a fugazi. That's what they do. 
They're saying that he's a fake, right? They say that the, the real apostles, they're back in Jerusalem. Peter, James, John, all those guys, those are the real apostles, and they're back in Jerusalem. They say that Paul is sort of, maybe at best, a second-rate apostle. And they, what they do is they, they begin to plant these seeds of doubt within the Galatians' minds. And now the folks in Galatia are questioning all sorts of things. They're like, is Paul really a legitimate apostle? But then, secondly, these troublemakers say that it's, it's not just Paul, actually, but his gospel itself is fugazi, right? They say that the gospel itself is incomplete, that he's actually been holding out from you. They say, sure, you know what? Paul told you about Jesus, but did he also tell you that in order to really become a Christian, you have to be circumcised? I mean, Jesus is great. That's a great start. But Jesus plus circumcision it is what makes you a real Christian. And again, you see it happening. Confusion is starting to build up. And, and slowly, the Galatians are moving away from the true gospel. And so what you see here this morning what we're reading is actually Paul responding to those accusations. And what he wants to do is to make one thing sort of crystal clear for you, that this is not man's gospel. This is not man's gospel. And so he begins by rattling out sort of reason after reason why. Like, take for example in verse 12, he says this. He says, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. What is Paul saying here? It's actually fairly straightforward, right? It's pretty simple. He's saying this. He said, I didn't hear the gospel because somebody handed me a tract, right? He wasn't standing in Broad and Alney and somebody handed him a tract and he believed it for the first time. Or he's saying, you know what? I didn't believe the gospel because somebody met up with me weekly at Starbucks and discipled me. And then I became aware of what the gospel was and I believed it. Or he's saying, you know what, I didn't go to church one day and all of a sudden I heard a sermon and I came to believe this gospel. Nope, he's saying it's none of that. Paul's saying man had nothing to do with it. Man had nothing to do with it. I didn't hear or believe the gospel because of any man. So then the obvious question is, well then Paul, how did you hear about it? We'll look at the end of verse 12. It says, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, I heard it straight from the horse's mouth. I'm not calling Jesus a horse, right? But that's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, I received it directly from Jesus Christ. I mean, you can read more about it in Acts chapter 9. But essentially, Paul encounters the resurrected Jesus. And I mean, there's, there's bright lights, there's a voice from heaven, the whole nine yards. And in a blink of an eye, Paul goes from unbeliever to believer. It's that fast. Direct revelation from God. It's an instantaneous change. Paul hears the gospel from no one else besides Jesus Christ himself. And do you know why that would be so important to Paul? Because it means that he is actually no different than any of the other apostles. Consider this, right? The same Jesus that stood on the mountain and pointed to Peter and James and John and Thomas and Bartholomew and all the other 12 and said, I choose you to be my apostle, right? That same Jesus looked at 
Paul in the eye and he said, and I choose you too. Paul was given the gospel and his calling directly from Jesus, right? It's not from some secondhand source. It's directly from Jesus. And what that ultimately means is that Paul, too, is a capital A apostle. In fact, Paul goes out of his way to show that though he is equal to the apostles, he wants you to be clear, he didn't receive the gospel from the apostles, right? Remember how we talked about this travel itinerary that Paul gives? Well, he does it to make a point. Look at verse 17 to 20. He says this. He says, I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, listen, after I received the gospel from Jesus, this is what I did. I went away immediately into Arabia. I went there. And then I went to Damascus. And then only three years later did I finally go to Jerusalem to see the apostles. Do you see the point that he's trying to make? He is saying this. He's saying by the time that he saw the apostles, he had already known and believed the gospel. You see, he didn't go to the apostles to get taught. He went there to show that he has already understood the gospel. You see, what we're seeing here is Paul is sort of driving home the point. He's making it more and more clear. This isn't man's gospel. He didn't receive it from any man. He didn't even receive it from the other apostles. But maybe, of all the points that he's trying to make, maybe the most compelling argument that Paul has for this not being man's gospel is actually his own life. Look at verse 13 and 14. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. Paul's saying this. He's saying, listen, my former life can sort of be summarized like this. I hated Jesus. I killed Christians. And I was devoted to every Jewish law possible, including circumcision. So wouldn't you imagine that I would be the last person in the world to come up with a gospel that says, actually, Jesus is all that you need. And you know what circumcision? Circumcision is actually unnecessary, right? Do you get that? It goes against everything that Paul has ever stood for. Everything that Paul now loves is everything that he was once dead against. And everything that he is now dead against is everything that he once loved. It, it would sort of be like if Elon Musk issued a statement tomorrow saying, you know what, I actually think everybody should just go out and buy gas guzzlers. Buy the biggest truck that you can possibly find, because I actually think electric cars have no benefit. They're actually completely useless. That was all a mistake, right? Wouldn't that be the last thing that you would imagine for him to say? The last thing for him to have come out of his mouth? Well, Paul is saying, this is the same thing I'm saying. You can be sure that my gospel is not man's gospel. Why? Because what I believe and preach now 
are the last things you would ever imagine coming out of my mouth. Now maybe after hearing all of those arguments, you're asking yourself, you know, why is Paul going through all of this trouble, right? Like, is he just really insecure or something? Like, is he maybe just paranoid about what people think about him? Maybe Paul secretly craves man's approval, and this is just sort of his, uh, you know, a chance to try to prove himself right. And he hates the fact that people are questioning him and questioning his gospel and is killing him. Well, Paul makes it absolutely clear in verse 10 that this isn't at all about people pleasing. Listen to what he says. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, this is what Paul is trying to say. Everything that he's saying and everything that he's doing is not because he wants people to love him more, but because he wants people to love God more. That's what he's trying to do. Here's what I mean. You see, Paul wants you to know that there is nothing lacking in him as a messenger so that you'd ultimately know that there is nothing lacking in his message. Remember, this was the accusation. They were saying, Paul is not enough, so you need Paul plus something. That's what they're saying. And what they're also saying is that Paul's message is not enough, and so you need Jesus plus something. And by causing people to drift away from Paul, they're ultimately causing people to drift away from Christ. And for Paul, that's the heart of the problem. He's not afraid that people won't like him. That's not the problem. At the end of the day, that makes no difference to him. No, the issue is that trusting Paul means trusting the true gospel, God's gospel. And it means that you're not being swept away by some false gospel or man's gospel. And for Paul, that's all that really matters. In Seven Mile Road, I would say this, right? His concern wasn't just for the Galatians back then, but even for us, even as we sit here today. Would you consider this? 13 out of the 27 books of the New Testament are written by Paul. 13 of them. Consider that. Paul's letters have shaped so much about how we consider our faith, how we think about theology, how we understand the gospel. Like, I really do believe that love is patient and that love is kind and it does not envy or boast. Or I'm banking my entire life on the fact that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or even as a church, we're trying to lead our church based on the truth that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Do you know why? Because the apostle Paul said so. And we really do believe that when we read these words from the Apostle Paul, we're not simply hearing from man. We're actually hearing from God. Like, we really mean this. Like, you know how there's some Bibles with uh, Jesus' words in red? It, you see that and you say, wow, these are the words of God, like, straight from Jesus' mouth. But here's the thing, right? If there's any part of you that would put Jesus' words here and Paul's words here, then Paul would tell you, well, you might as well print everything that I've ever written in red as well. 
right? Because he would say, I need you to hear that my words have no less weight. My words have no less authority. And that's because my message is not from man. They're not through man. They are from God. You see, Paul is obviously not Jesus, but Jesus continued to speak to us through Paul's letters. And so for all of us here this morning, that's the, that's the claim that you need to wrestle with. As you read the words of Paul, if you find yourself saying things like, well, sure, you know, Paul said X, Y, and Z, but, but Jesus never said that. Or if you say, you know, that's just Paul's interpretation of things, but that's not what Jesus taught. Well, then Paul would want you to hear over and over again what he said in verse 11. He would say to you, for I would want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So my road, I don't know if you've noticed by now, but Paul wants you to really, really see that his gospel is not man's gospel, but God's gospel. That's what he wants you to see. And church, can I tell you why I think it's so important that we get this? Why I think this is believing this matters so much? It's because the, the second thing that this passage helps us to see. Here's point two. It says man's gospel is all about what we do, but God's gospel is all about what God does. Man's gospel is all about what we do, but God's gospel is all about what God does. Take a look at verse 13 and 14. It says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. You see, this is Paul describing his own former way of life. He's describing his life before meeting Jesus. Now, do you notice anything about the focal point of these sentences? Look at it again. It's all I, I, I. It's almost like every sentence begins with I. It's all about Paul and what he did. I mean, look at it again. I persecuted the church. I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism. I was zealous for my father's traditions. You see, it's, it's sort of like Paul is presenting a resume that's a mile long, trying to show you, trying to convince you of all the things that he had done for God. This was Paul's former life. This was what it looks like for Paul to trust in man's gospel. Because you see, that's what man's gospel is like. Man's gospel is always about me and what I do. Man's gospel always puts me at the center. Man's gospel always makes me the savior of my own life. You see, man's gospel, whether irreligious or religious, whatever form it comes in, is always about what you do and what you accomplish. So, for example, if you're religious, man's gospel tells you that your efforts are what you need to do to get to God. So you think to yourself, I want to be saved, so I'm going to do a bunch of things. I'll be a good person as best as I can. I'm going to do my devotions. I'll give away my money. And your hope is that in the end, your resume, your body of work will be impressive enough to please God. Right? That's man's gospel. I mean, isn't this the, the entire premise of that, that great show, The Good Place? This is the idea, right? That if you're good enough, well, then you'll end up, end up there. But that if you're bad enough, 
you're not good enough, that you'll end up down there. Right? That's the point. But you see, this isn't just what people on television believe. You and I can be the same way. We could be sitting here this morning and hoping that at the end of your life, your life will be impressive enough that God will tell you, all right, go ahead, come on up. That's what maybe you're hoping for. I mean, maybe you won't say that out loud, but honestly, that's what you believe. But how about if you're here and you're not religious? I hope you see that you too believe in a gospel. I mean, maybe your heaven doesn't have God in it. No, instead, your heaven is made up of maybe lowercase g gods, things like wealth or a job title. And so what do you do? You spend all of your life trying to get to heaven, right, to your heaven. You work really hard. You invest as best as you can. You get the best education that you can. And at the end of, end of your life, your hope is that you will have done enough to achieve your heaven. But don't you see, at the end of the day, it's still about you, right? You worked hard enough to earn the wealth or had a resume impressive enough to get the promotion. It was all about you. You were able to get yourself into heaven. And so please see that whether you are religious or irreligious, your gospel tells you that it's all about you. But Seven Mile Road... Paul wants you to see that man's gospel and God's gospel are night and day different. You see, God's gospel is completely counterintuitive to the way that man thinks or lives. Take a look at verse 15 and 16 to see what I mean. It says this, He who had set me apart before I was born, and he who called me by his grace, he was pleased to reveal his son to me. Consider those verses, Seven Mile Road. In these verses, who's doing the work? God is. And in these verses, who is receiving the benefit of the work? Paul is. You see, what you're reading here in front of your face are the, it's the very truth of God's gospel. This is the very heart of God's gospel. You see, the, the heart of God's gospel is that God does the work and we reap the benefits. Look at it again. Because we would say with Paul, right? God set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. We would say that with Paul. Now let me ask you, how did you contribute to your salvation before you were born? Or, or what resume did you have before you came into existence? Or what role did you play in earning your salvation before you came into this world? Nothing. Paul is saying nothing. We had nothing to do with it. It was all God. He set me apart. He showed me his grace. And he did all of that before I even took my first breath. Or again, we would say with Paul, God was pleased to reveal his son to me. You know, God took my blind eyes and he allowed me to be able to see. Or he took my dead heart and he awakened it to Christ. And what the scripture is saying is that he did all of that out of his own pleasure. Would you imagine? It pleased God to save you. It 
pleased God to reveal his son to you. He didn't do it out of obligation. He didn't do it because this is what you earned. No, he was pleased to save you and me. Would you consider that for a moment? Paul hated Jesus. Paul persecuted the church. He killed Christians. And it was God's pleasure to save him. Some I wrote, God isn't begrudgingly saving you. He's not even just tolerating you. He saved you out of his own pleasure. As we close this morning, let me show you where God's gospel leads. Look at the way that this section ends. Verse 23 and 24. It says, They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. You see, in the true gospel, in God's gospel, it leads to God being glorified for what he has done. You know, I, I've heard it said this way. You know, man's gospel will ultimately lead always to either pride or to despair. Man's gospel always will lead to either pride or to despair. If you feel like you've kept the rules or you've been good enough or you've had an impressive enough of a resume, well, then that will lead you to be puffed up with pride, right? But if you feel like you've broken the rules or haven't been good enough, or maybe your, your resume isn't impressive enough, then what does it do? Then you shrivel up in despair. But you see, God's gospel says something totally different. It says, we didn't do anything to save ourselves. So we have no reason to be proud. But it also says, God was pleased to save us. So we have no reason to despair. In the end, it's not about us or what we've done. It's about God and what he's done. And because of that, he will receive all the glory. Sevma wrote, this is the true gospel. It's not from man. It's all about God. So may the Lord help us to believe it. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would open our eyes so that we can see how much more beautiful your gospel is than our own. Help us to see that we can stop living a life of trying to impress you, that we can stop trying to prove ourselves to you. Help us to see that the gospel is not about us trying to get to you, but instead about you coming down to us. You did the work, you did all the work, and we reap the benefits. Help us to love and believe and share that gospel, the true gospel. And in the end of our lives, may we not care a single ounce about our own glory, but may our lips forever sing your praises alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.